We continue this evening through the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 19. I'll be reading the entirety of that chapter. We move through these case laws that are an opening up or expansion of the Ten Commandments. I would put this to you. If you vote for me, I promise that on my first day of office, I will abolish the Fed, the IRS. All right, I'm done. I'll see you all later. <laughs> and I would take these ten words, and I would seek to take these case laws and use them to benefit the people for this reason. In keeping God's laws, there is great reward. There isn't just safety, but there is, in fact, the promotion of life. So I think what we are finding ourselves in now in many evangelical churches today, this is a bit polemical. I can cut this maybe if I need to. No, I won't. Is that many people shy away from passages, not like this, but other passages that are found in the Torah, because they don't know what to do with them with modern-day sensibilities. They're sort of, oh, I don't know about that. And so they just sort of say, well, I hope X unbeliever will never read that passage and confront me on it. Let me tell you this. Satan knows his Bible better than you do, and you better believe he's going to stir up problems for the church. In those areas where we are cowardly and incapable to defend the truth and validity of God's word, this is where I'm going. If you know how to apply the Ten Commandments, it isn't just good for yourself, for your family, for your church. It is good for every sphere in which you find yourself. And so what I want us to see is that we sell the word of God short if we say, what does Deuteronomy 19 mean to me? What does the word of God have to say about every sphere of human life? How can you and I, as we go forth from this place, we're not there yet because we're not done with the sermon. I'm just getting into the intro before the intro. How do we take this into the world and apply it so that we might protect and preserve life? All right, Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 21. I think it will become apparent to you. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them, that means you get them out of there, and you dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide it into three parts, the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hatred him, hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you 
you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three. Lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. 14. You shall not move to your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in any connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, these things are too high and holy for us, and so we need your wisdom. Be To be men not only, Lord, of discernment to understand your word, but of conviction to apply it to our lives. And certainly these things are unpopular in such a lawless age in which we live. But Lord, certainly, certainly you have called us to be men who are willing to gird their loins and go forth into battle that we might fight the good fight of the faith. Lord, make us such a courageous people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess I'll just let the cat out of the bag. If someone ever comes to you and asks, are you a theonomist? I want you to ask this question. Do you mean, do I believe that God's law should be our law? I say that in some manner of jest because they'll say, well, yeah, I believe that too. That we should all be in some fashion uh, theonomic. We should seek for the law of God to be the highest law of the land. Uh, Let's just take for a moment an individual's life. If you remove the seat of authority of Christ from a person's life and Christ no longer calls the shot, what kind of person do you have? Let's say a father seeks to shepherd himself over his wife and his children and he says, we're going to do it my way. And he jettisons the word of God. 
and his call to be a faithful husband or faithful father. What if a wife or even a child says, you know what, the fifth commandment, I'm not a big fan of it. That's the big one, right, kids? What if a pastor of a church says, you know what, I don't care what you say. This is my church. Don't you oppose me. I've seen people driven out. What if a a body politic says, you know what, these are the rules according to X. Some other leader, some other political philosophy other than that which is derived from Scripture itself. You end up with tyrants, don't you? Snakes. Those whose power goes to their head and they do not bless the people but are in fact a curse to the people. God is giving to Israel the law in two ways. A law for the church and a law for the nation. And these things are linked because they all come from God's sovereign, righteous hand. It is not always the same laws because they do not implement the same force and in the same ways. But the end is the same. That righteousness and peace might flourish. How do you do it? How does peace and righteousness flourish when you're out with your buddy and you kill him with the axe head that flies off the handle and you know he's got a brother with a hot temper? What do you do in such a situation? It's a case law. But it provides for us a glimpse not only into the mind and heart of God, but how we ought to organize all of our life. And so, three points that I want to make this evening. The first... Cities of refuge, cities of refuge. The second, the continued promotion of life, the continued promotion of life. And then thirdly, purging evil from the hosts of men, purging evil from the hosts of men. Let's look at the first. It's the, 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 the majority of this text is devoted to how Israel is to establish three cities in the land that they have removed the pagan nations out of, and these three cities are to be the same in size and equidistance from one another in the land of Israel. And for this reason, let's say you're out with your buddy and you're cutting down trees with your Husqvarna and you lose control. Have you ever cut down a tree with a farm saw? I don't mean a little 12-inch chainsaw. I mean an 18 or 20-inch farm saw. That thing kicks And it kicks so quickly that it'll hit you in the face ever before you knew what was happening. Or sometimes the chain will get thrown. My daughter, who's now cutting trees, the other day was out there with her chainsaw. And she's sort of in the process of being tested. And she had the chainsaw in her hand. And she, for just one moment, lapsed in concentration. She let it drop. Now she's wearing Kevlar pants. And it took some of the fabric off the top of her pants. And her foreman said... Two more weeks. Oh, what an advantage. She's wearing Nike training shorts. Well, it would have been her thigh, not her pants. They're dangerous. What if there is an accident? What if you're out there with one of your buddies and you just make a great line, but you don't say, Timber. I can't yell right now. Timber. And he's just, you know, he's over there. And all of a sudden, he's a nail driven into the ground. Well, What do you do? What is the verdict? What do you do in a society where there are not well-established courts yet? Well, let's say that buddy of yours 
has a hot-tempered cousin named Jethro. And Jethro's coming after you with his chainsaw because he heard that you killed him with a tree. Where do you go? Well, you go to a city of refuge. You go to one of these cities because you are innocent of murder, though you have taken a life. Now, here's what we need to understand about God's law. God's law is not written for idyllic circumstances. God's law is written for real life. And so he covers real circumstances, not only that could really happen, but that do happen because we live in a world covered in sin. Parents, maybe you have some of these laws. Laws that are so impossible to reach that they almost assume that your children have already arrived at the place that the laws you should be implementing would lead them to if they were good laws. You know what I mean? Like, you can't expect your five-year-old to be able to cook creme brulee yet. He can't even fry an egg. But you're saying, I want you to go into your room, and I want you to dust precisely. I want you to do all of these things. And if you do not do this, you will be in trouble. Has anybody seen Annie? I see Bo raising his hand back there. I'm not sure what's going on in, in Bo's house, but are you dusting well? You know, the sort of Cinderella, the Annie, these people laboring away, slaving under law. Law that does not teach or give life. It is oppressive. This is not the law of God. It gives life. And it gives clarity to otherwise difficult situations. The Lord also knows that we, well, we're prone to anger. What if it was your brother or sister or family member and you heard about this? There's a wait till I get a hold of them. There has to be a place that is close enough to go to so that the relative that hears about this accident, although they may not have heard it's an accident, we don't know if it's an accident yet, do we? They can flee to this city and they can be safe. Now, that means they're guarded there by someone or someones who can help them until it is clear that it is a case not of murder, but of manslaying. And the condition, which we'll look at in a minute, is very important. But we need to understand the distinction in order to understand the concept of guilt or innocence. Now look, the Lord moves through here. He establishes that you've got to put these cities in Israel after having kicked the pagans out. You see this as a provision. You see the example of the cutting of the wood in verses 5 and 6. And you read this at the end of verse 6. Though the man did not deserve to die, since, what is the qualifier? It was not premeditated or done out of hatred. Whoop. It just came off. Now there are laws of negligence. If that man knew that the head of that axe was loose and he should have put a nail through it so it didn't come off, that's negligence and that's something else. But this is what we would call accidental death. That isn't due to negligence. It's just, from man's perspective, a freak accident. Does that man deserve to die? What does God's law say? Absolutely not. He's innocent. 
Now, we ought to chalk it up right to God's providence. God is sovereign over all things. That man's days were numbered. If that man got hit in the face by a flying axe blade in the middle of the woods by a buddy whose axe was in good shape, you better know God wanted him to die on that day. His days were numbered. But what do you do if you're left behind and you're not sovereign? Well, you endeavor to determine the circumstances of guilt and innocence. Now, manslaying is unintentional without premeditation. It is an accident. And so that man is innocent. But then there is another kind of life-taking, and we see it in verses 11 through 13. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of those cities, then the men who are in those cities of refuge must take him out of that city and deliver him over to the avenger. Now, who is the avenger? It is not the state. It is the person, it is the closest relative of the one who lost. It is a family member. Now, it is overseen by the community, and the guilt and innocence of that are heard by judges and priests. That means that man goes through court twice, a church court and a civil court. But the punishment is carried out by the avenger. The avenger is the one who has been wronged. Now, it could be someone other than one person. It could be more than one individual. It could be the whole camp. And in the places of blasphemy, when a man sins against God with his mouth and with his idolatrous, unrepentant heart, then the whole camp has been offended. You know what happens? Everybody goes out. And the ones who testified go out and stone him first. And then everybody comes out together. But in this particular instance, we're looking at a small group, if not a single individual, who is the avenger. Now, what God has built in, in this system, is also a condition for growth. The assumption, rightly so, based upon the promises of God, is that Israel will continue to expand over all the earth. Now, here's my question. Has she? The answer to that question is... Yes, we are Israel. We are the New Testament Israel. And so these laws ought to apply to us in some fashion. And we are to take the general equity of them and apply them to our lives. Now, the name of these three cities were Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron, or Hebron. They come up throughout the scriptures. And these three cities were, in essence, an assumption of innocence before a trial. This was a place where you could go and not be killed if you were innocent. But if you were found guilty, then you were removed from those cities and you were called. Your, the blood was on your hands. The avenger was coming. Now, how do you determine that? So we look at this principle and go, oh, that's a great principle. Well, it's good on paper. How do you implement it? We've had some of these rules in our house. Oh, man, that's a great idea. Or just an idea. Here's this beautiful bookcase. We're going to buy this beautiful bookcase. Do you all know the principle about flat surfaces in children? If you have a flat surface, be prepared for it to what? Be covered with stuff. And so as soon as you put a, a piece of furniture in your house, 
you have to have a plan for it. As soon as you have a law, you have to know how you implement it. You can't just say, okay, I can get behind that. I'm a social justice warrior for that particular principle. The question is, how do you carry it out? How do you determine if it was an accident or if it was premeditated, if it was not hatred or if it was hatred? Well, you have to have witnesses. Do you know why? Because contrary to popular belief, you don't know everything. (laughs) Only one does. And he is giving us laws that are the best reflection of how to be as just and impartial as possible while being two things, creaturely and sinful. Creaturely and sinful. And so that is why we see in verses 15 through 21, laws concerning witnesses. And not just how many, but there also ought to be laws about whether or not witnesses bear false witness against your neighbor. That is really the heart of the seventh commandment. Do you bear false witness against your neighbor? It isn't just lying. It's lying for the purpose of specific harm. It is itself an act of violence. Now we'll get to that more in a moment as we go to the second point. But for now, what I want us to see is a principle that should convict all of our hearts, and that is this. We rush to judgment. And when I say we, I'm not talking to the evangelical right or the communistic left and everyone in between. I'm talking about the sin condition of men is to rush to judgment based upon what we think of the person who's embroiled in the controversy. Right? We love to hear a bad report about someone we don't like. We can't stand to hear a bad report about someone we think that's playing them for our team. Or we'll believe a good report about someone we think is good, but we won't hear a good report about someone we think is bad. Instead, what we ought to do is weigh the evidence. It's actually amazing how often I have rushed to judgment and then there's been a court case and things came out and completely changed my mind about a matter. Or let's say, parents, you're trying to judge between two children that come to you with a report of injustice. Well, he did this, she did that, and you begin to go, well, let's weigh what happened. Here's the problem. You have two witnesses. They don't agree. They never agree. And so then you bring in the impartial third child. Yeah, the impartial third child. There is no such thing. Because that third child probably got an offer under the table before mom and dad. They got to mom and dad. I'll give you my video game playing time if you tell him what I said. And so it does take great wisdom. And what we must also acknowledge is this, that no matter what... Not every case will be heard completely, truthfully. There will always be, among those who are not sovereign, even though we desire righteousness and truth, there will be a certain measure of injustices because we are not the perfect judge. Which is why we should lean upon Christ. Because he is the only perfect judge. 
More on that too in a moment. So let's talk more about how the whole camp can get behind this principle. Second point, the continued promotion of life. I want us to look again at the hearts of those involved. If you're the guy who killed your friend with an axe head accidentally, what are you thinking? Well, sorrow, remorse, and fear. Because you know about his buddy Jethro. Jethro is an Old Testament name. You're probably thinking, oh, is this incident placed somewhere in the deep south? No, it's right there in Israel. And he's coming after you, and you've got to get on your horse, and you've got to ride to that city. And you make it, and he's out there fuming. He's angry. Well, you're safe. You're safe. And in God's eyes, and as it ought to be, in the eyes of the body, the congregation, you are innocent when all the evidence has been heard. Now, in order to try someone for murder and to convict them, it isn't enough just for someone to say, I saw him do it, and somebody slips in between. It must be two or three. This is actually the, video, the weakness of video evidence. Have you seen this lately, even our own court system? The video shows, without a shadow of a doubt, that person did X until there's another angle. Someone else had another camera. And in that camera, it shows a completely different narrative. Here is the problem. We are prejudiced by nature. And we cannot see everything. And even when witnesses come, at times it is difficult to discern. And so we must be people of wisdom and virtue first. In fact, we see this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three shall a charge be established. But then there's a situation that could arise. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. What's the dispute? Manslayer or murder? That's the dispute. Which one is it? Are they guilty or are they innocent? Then both shall appear before whom? Where is every case tried? In heaven. And God is the judge and arbiter of all things. Not just in an Old Testament Israel theonomic sense. But every courtroom stands before God as judge. And so when you sit down and they say. What is it? Right hand up, left hand on the Bible. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? What? So help you God. Which means what? If I lie, I am worthy of damnation. That God himself will judge me if I lie. If someone gets on the stand, verse 17, then both uh, parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. There is no such thing as an unreligious court. There is no court where the Lord does not sit and watch. And himself is privy to the matters that go on. All injustices will be righted. If you believe that that is not the case, 
then every civil trial will never reach justice if it is outside God's purview. There has been a number of... In, I, have witnessed, I have witnessed injustices in my day. And I have seen murderers go free and those accused of murder go to jail that were innocent based upon faulty evidence. Where is their justice if God is not present? He is present. And that is why it is so severe. Before the priests, church courts, and the judges who are in office in those days, the judges shall inquire what? Diligently. And if the witness is a false witness, guess what happens to that witness? They get the very punishment that they're accusing the other person of doing. Now, what would that make witnesses very, very careful. Very, very cautious. Oh, I saw him kill him. You walk outside. Somebody slips you that bribe. Another person sees it. Maybe two people see it. Guess what happens? Now your life is forfeit. The problem with society, whether it is in the home, in the church, or in the state is that there are very few quick penalties and sufficient penalties for betrayals of confidence, for lying. Because all of these things ultimately lead to violence. The question for us is this. Do we have hearts that are willing to tell the truth even if it means a man is put to death? Look at verse 13. Your eyes shall not pity him. Poor. This is not a passage that the big steeple churches are going to emphasize very much, right? Why? Because it's pretty harsh. Your eyes shall not pity him? Why? Because that man's life is forfeit because of the crime that he committed or the false testimony that he gave. Why should it? Why should we pity him? Now, what the Lord is talking about here is the realm of life and death, the physical body. And that when we see punishments handed down to those who have received the sentence of death, then we need to understand that there is a reason for that. And we need to be part of the, the, com, the, 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 the institution that makes sure that it's done right and well. That there are no bribes taken, there's no false witnesses given, and that the truth is declared. But once the truth is declared, and all things have been given account, and the judge and the priest have determined that this is what it is, then the sentence must be handed down. And what ought that sentence be? Well, let's look. Well, let's do this. Let's look at verse 14. Because you're like thinking, what in the world are we going to do with verse 14? Property. Property is, is possession that we defend even to death. The Lord does not wish for people to steal from one another in these most serious of ways, because I, that was a word, that was not a word. Serious of ways, because when you steal a man's property, he's going to defend it. 
Even in this land, if you step foot on someone's property at night, guess what they have every right to do? It's called the castle doctrine. They can defend their property. If you say, you know what? I know his property line is there. I'm going to put the west wing of my new home right over the line. What's that guy going to do? Shh, what are you doing on my property? It's a Hatfield-McCoy situation, right? And it hands down from generation to generation to generation. People kill over territory. Now, how do we know this? Because we see it all the time. In fact, the wars, most of the wars fought between nations is a war for property. It's a war for capital. It's a war for possession. And God knows that men will fight over the smallest things. And so he says, don't you dare steal another man's property because it will lead to this kind of situation. Hatred in your heart so that one day, let's say you're out there and you've had hatred in your heart and your axe head flies off and hits them. Guess what? You could be charged for murder. God is wishing to protect his people. That we are called, all of us, to continue the promotion of life. Third point, purging evil from the hosts of men. I got a little bit ahead of myself. It's Sunday night. I'm kind of all over the place right now. If the point is to purge evil, then we must not only have faithful witnesses, but we must institute this principle that we see here in verse 21. Your eye shall not pity. That was repeated twice. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, many sophisticated moderns will say, what a backwards law. Now, let's not remember that these are the same modern that tear children foot from foot, hand from hand. They literally rip them limb from limb. For what? What has that child done? What have they done? Or they imprison pastors for preaching the gospel. These are the people that want to say, your law is too ancient and savage a law. Now, the reason they use verse 21 is because what they think it is, is that it is a law of vengeance. They took mine, I'm going to take theirs. What this is, is a law of measure. It is a law of parity. That the punishment must follow the crime. There must be absolute parity. Parity means equality. It's not the thing that sits on your shoulder in case kids are wondering, why is he talking about parrots all of a sudden? So when you have this witness, for instance, that speaks a falsehood against someone and is accusing them of murder, but they're lying, that man's life should be forfeit because they are throwing that other person's life into jeopardy. That is eye for an eye. It is recompense. Now, here's the thing. It does not always have to be followed. It is possible for there to be forgiveness. You don't have to go after that guy who accidentally or maybe even intentionally killed your brother. Vengeance is not always necessary. But what we find is that the limit of God's law is if a man kills your cat, you can't kill his wife. And if a man runs over your dog, you can't hit his kid with a bat. There must be absolute parity between these things. Because the tendency is to do what? Well, 
If your kid does something wrong and it's the 300th time, what starts to happen? You see red and you just, I'm going to go walk over here because if I don't walk over here, I may do something I regret. That is not eye for an eye. That's an eye for a fingernail, right? We are by nature unjust creatures. And so God would say it's one for one. You have the freedom. And this is how order will be established in the societies of men. But there is also here a principle that I want us to see as it relates to the law and to the word of God and the, this sort of prefiguring of the messianic figure that is throughout the Old Testament. And that is this. Christ is the one to whom we run for refuge against the avenger. To whom do you owe a debt? Now, many of the church fathers, not having a well-developed doctrine of God, said for many years, we owe a debt to Satan. But is Satan the judge of all the earth? Is he the avenger? No, he is the false witness. He is the great accuser. Here's the issue. Every single one of us has committed a capital offense against the throne of heaven. You and I are all worthy of death. There are no accidental sins for which we will be judged. There is no accidental sin. But there are no accidental offenses that God will say, well, I got you there. All of our hands are dripping red with blood. We have hated in our heart. We have lusted after another. We have committed untold sins. You and I have murdered. And yet, there is a city into which we might flee for refuge. So that the avenger may have nothing against us. The avenger is the one of whom, or the one whom we have offended. It is the one to whom we owe a debt, and that is none other than God himself. He is the great judge of all the earth. And in Christ Jesus, though we may be guilty of various crimes here, our sins can be forgiven. There is but one way, and that is to run to Christ for refuge. This is how societies will be transformed. This is how prisons will become places of rehabilitation. Well, I could refine that point in another sermon. This is why we go and do ministry to those who are in jail. Not just because they're saints who may be there in prison for their faith, but because there may be those who are elect there who have committed a crime, but their lives are not over. And by knowing the love of Christ and the offer of salvation, they may go to the chair, but their souls will live forever in glory. The fact of the matter is this. This law comes to people who are lawbreakers. And we are handling things that are too high and wonderful for us to even touch. And so though we are able to handle these things, we must always remember that it is the saints that are called to handle them. Only we have the wisdom because only we have the spirit at work within us. And it is with always this balancing perspective. If it were not for the grace of God, there go I. 
And so we must remember that before the judge of all the earth and his faithful testimony and the charge is this. This is what brought terror in the life of Martin Luther. He knew before God he was guilty and he hated God. He could not love him. He resented God like a A child resents an overbearing parent. They want to love and they want that affection, but all they see is a frown. Until Luther opened the book of Romans and he saw, and now the righteousness of God is revealed against ungodliness. And he saw it not merely as God coming in judgment, but the righteous gift of God coming in the person and work of Christ Jesus on his behalf. This is what the law teaches us. That though we be vile offenders, in Christ Jesus, God is purging the evil from our midst. And this is only something Christ can do. And he has still left to us this responsibility to endeavor to purge violence in two ways. The application of the law and the proclamation of the gospel. And this is what we are called to do. And by this, by God's grace, we will do it faithfully until the coming, until he comes again. Let's pray.